Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. <laughs> Your response was lacking. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> that's okay. Hey, if you've got a Bible, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. It'll be found in your bulletin, and it'll be found uh, on the screen as well. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, and the context around there as well. Let me, let me read for us. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. On the wall of one of my son's rooms uh, hangs a picture of a young lady named Zoe Marr. On the dashboard of another one of my son's car is a stuffed animal that was a gift from Zoe Marr. Zoe was an amazing young lady who grew up in Ahwatukee and was one of the most vibrant members of our student ministry. I remember when she would walk into the church on Sunday evening and just come into the room, she would light up the room with her smile, with her personality, and with her voice. She was a member of our, our praise band. And in May of 2017, Zoe went to bed acting completely herself, but the next morning, her grandparents, Bob and Trina, who raised Zoe from uh, birth, they weren't able to wake her. She'd had an aneurysm, and she passed away on May 8th. And on the night that Zoe died, another family, the Perez family, received a midnight phone call from their doctor that a kidney was available for their five-year-old, Giovanni, who'd been born with two small, low-functioning, underdeveloped kidneys. And it struck me this week as there was a, a news story done about Bob and Trina and this relationship and how they were introduced just this week, uh, last week actually, to, to this family, Giovanni's family, and they met them for the first time that Zoe's name in Greek means life, and she was able to give the gift of life. And Bob and Trina, who are a part of this family at New Valley, if you know them, are such an example of joy and of faith and in happiness, even after suffering the fear and the loss that every single one of us parents fear the most. And can, can you admit that that's got to be our greatest fear as parents? And yet, in light of that, Bob and Trina have the gift of joy and faith. And if you would spend any time with them at all, you would be so blessed. How are they able to do that? Facing one of life's greatest sufferings. The French philosopher Luke Ferry, not a believer, he's a secular humanist, wrote this though. Everyone seeks some way to face life with confidence and death without regret. 
Every one of us, from secular humanists to a follower of Jesus to different religions, we're all trying to seek a way to face life with confidence and to face our death and the death, the inevitable death of everyone that we love and hold dear without fear or regret. How do we do that? Christians are able to do so because of Easter, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have this foundation and this rock and this hope. And if you were able to talk to Bob and Trina about this or, or anyone else in this room who's suffered great loss, the loss of a child or loss of a loved one or lives with chronic pain, you would know that the Christian faith is not an escape from pain. It's not an escape from reality. It's not to push the mourning or the sadness away, but it's this firm foundation and resource in the midst of suffering, right? It is not the rejection of pain. It's not the denial of suffering or of mourning. Instead, it is this firm foundation and resource that those of us who hope in the resurrection can firmly plant our feet upon. Zoe loved Jesus, and we believe she is alive with him even now, celebrating the gift of the resurrection with him even today. Today, we're going to look at the story of the Apostle Paul and see how his life was changed by encountering the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look about what that can impact us as well. Experiencing the Lord, the risen, excuse me, let me start over. It, it should be up here. Experiencing the risen Jesus moves us from our way to the way. Experiencing the risen Jesus moves us from our way to the way. Our way first. Our way. Paul was a man on a mission before becoming a follower of Jesus. And as you, you read from the context, his name, his name was Saul before he followed Jesus. But look at the mission that he was on before following Christ. Look at his mission. Saul breathed murderous threats against the followers of Jesus. And with permission from the high priest, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to face trial and execution. In Acts 26, it says that he persecuted them with a raging fury. This is the way that Paul described it. He persecuted Christians with a raging fury. Luke explains in the book of Acts that while Paul was on his way, so we just read from chapter 9, while Paul was on his way, he was going to persecute Christians who were on the way. And that's how Christians describe themselves at that point. They, they didn't call themselves Christians yet. They called themselves the way. So while Paul was on his way, his way to persecute Christians and to arrest them, they were following the way. Paul was on his way, his path, his agenda, his will. And it's interesting, as, as we study this man who is going about trying to persecute Christians before he becomes a Christian, it is very interesting, as, as Carson prayed this morning, that even this morning, even today, people around the world are suffering for the name of Christ and are even losing their lives. His way versus the way. Our way versus the way. God's way. And now, I think more than ever, we are encouraged to pursue our way again and again and again and again. We are encouraged, are we not, to pursue our way. Every week when I drive down the 202, and maybe you're like me in this, as you're driving down the 202, there's a casino that has an advertisement for me and, and for you as well. 
And it says this to me as I drive down the road on the 202 every week, and I see it. It says this, Scott, you do you, okay? You do you, Scott. And I'm so thankful for that reminder for me to live my life for myself because without that, that weekly reminder, I might have actually thought of others and been considerate of them. As I'm driving down the road, I think to myself, like, I, I might be mindful of other drivers around me, but not today. Oh, no. <laughs> I will do me, and I will drive however I want to drive. You do you. Where does you do you actually work? <laughs> does it work in the home? Hey, man, why is your kid in the living room and starting up the lawnmower in there? it's just him, man. It's, it's what he does. It's just, that's just him being him. He loves power tools in the house. We can't stop him, right? I mean, it's what we do. Would it work at school? Can you imagine? Would it work at work? You do you. Just do whatever you want. Would it work at a casino? I want you to try this. Not today, it's Easter, but I want you to, to go into a casino and I want you to start counting cards, even if you can't, just act like you are. And as they drag you with the security guards out the front doors, I want you to cry, I'm just doing me. This is what I do. I count cards, right? It's who I am. Haters going to hate. Players going to play. It's what we do. And is that really what we want? Everyone just doing what they want to do. Who could survive? David Brooks is a New York Times columnist, and he wrote an article recently called The Five Lies That Our Culture Tells. I'm going to give you three of them today. You can look it up if you want the other three. Here are the three, three of the five. I can make myself happy. I can make myself happy. This is one of the lies that our culture tells us. This is the lie, he says, of self-sufficiency. This is the lie that happiness is an individual accomplishment. I can make myself happy. Second, he notes, his life is an individual journey. This lie encourages people to believe freedom is the absence of restraint. Be unattached. Stay on the move. Keep your options open. I can make myself happy. Life is an individual journey. And finally, you have to find your own truth. I'm not searching for the truth. I'm just searching for my truth. This is the privatization of meaning. Everybody chooses his or her own values. Come up with your own answers to life's ultimate questions. You do you, he writes. The problem is that unless your name is Aristotle, you probably can't do it. Aristotle can do it. Aristotle being Aristotle, that's fine. The rest of us probably should lay off except for Jesus. Point. You might be going the wrong way in life. You may be headed in the wrong direction, and how would you know? You doing you may not be working out so well with the rest of us in society also seeking the same objective. You may be going the wrong way, and how would you know? Experiencing the risen Jesus, as Paul did, moves us from our way to the way, from our agenda, our motive, our, our plans in life to God's plans in life. And let's look at that, the way versus our way. Paul was transformed from a man who was intensely following his path. He thought it was God's path. It was not. He was intensely following his way to a man who intensely followed God's way, the way. 
And the first thing we note from this passage this morning is that he got a new name. Saul gets a new name. Let's look at Acts 26, verses 13 through 14. Later, he's testifying in court before King Agrippa, and and he tells a similar version of the story that happened in Acts 9, which is his conversion story. But in Acts 26, if you want to go back later today and read it, he gives even more detail, and he says this, "'At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me, and those who journeyed with me And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul was called by name as Saul, and he had his name changed to Paul. But Jesus called him by name, and he gave him a brand new identity and a brand new hope and a brand new mission in life. And over the past 2,000 years since then, billions of people have put their faith in Jesus Christ and in a sense have had their name changed, maybe not literally, but spiritually, by getting a new identity. And they've been called by name. Maybe not heard an actual voice from heaven, but they have encountered the risen Jesus by faith and have had their identity changed profoundly. Has he called you by name? Has he called you by name? Given you a new hope? Given you a new identity? We see that in experiencing Jesus, Saul, who becomes Paul, gets a new name, and he gets a new Lord as well. We read in Acts 26, verse 15, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Paul had believed that he had been serving the Lord when he was persecuting believers. He believed that. But what he came to realize was in his pursuit of keeping God's law in a very twisted manner, in his pursuit of keeping the God's law, he was not serving the Lord, but instead he was seeking to be his own Lord and Savior. If I do enough good deeds, if I do enough righteousness, if I pursue these people, these blasphemies of God's law, and I hold them to account, maybe then God will grant me the grace to enter God's heaven, that maybe I can earn it, that he was seeking by his own works, his own even persecuting and evil, his own self-righteousness. He was doing everything he could to excel in his religion to get to the place where maybe God would accept him. But he came to know the gospel And I don't think any of us in this room would probably know what the good news about Jesus is. And that word gospel literally just means good news. If it weren't for the Apostle Paul, he came to know the good news about the gospel, that we receive the righteousness of God, not by what we do for God to earn it, but on account of what he has done for us. We have it. We have God's love. We have God's acceptance. We can rest on that. We have the assurance of this. And we can go now in freedom to love God with our heart and our neighbor is ourself. He taught us, Paul taught us in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. He moved from a man from being self-righteous to a man who rested upon Christ's righteousness. He moved from a man who was seeking God's acceptance through obedience, through religion, through keeping the law, from a man who realized that only Jesus could keep the law 
in his life and that he died the death that you and I deserved on the cross. And it changed everything from Paul, especially when you add the fact that he literally experienced the risen Lord Jesus. When Saul was doing Saul, he persecuted others, he hated others, he had zeal, and he had a commitment to God's truth, quote unquote. But look what evil he did in God's name. But when Paul gained Jesus as Lord, look at the type of man he became. Instead of zealously persecuting people, look what he did. In Romans 12, he calls believers in verses 14 through 17 to these kind of things. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The man that was binding women and men and probably even children in Damascus and trying to drag them back to Jerusalem to face a judge and then to vote for them, it says in Acts 26, that and many times he voted that they might die for their faith. To a man that now says, bless those that persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul got a whole new Lord. And to encounter the risen Jesus is to have your allegiance and your lordship shaken up. And I know that joking around about you do you, and I know, I know that has a lot of nuance to what culture means by that, but ultimately, the reality is we don't need anyone encouraging us to do ourselves, to live however we want to live. We're pretty good at that, are we not? Do you teach a child, hey, you need to be a little more selfish. Quit sharing so much, you know? No. You have to teach them the word yes, not no. To encounter the risen Jesus, you have your allegiance and your lordship radically shaken. You no longer walk in your way only. You learn, and it's a journey, right? But you learn to submit to the lordship of Christ and begin to walk with him on his way. From my will be done to your will be done. From my kingdom come to your kingdom come. From I need my glory to you get all the glory, Lord. From I'm first to I'm third. God first, other second, and I'm third. He gets a new Lord, he gets a new name, and he gets a new mission. Let's look at Acts 26, verses 15 through 16. A new Lord, a new name, and a new mission. He says this, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me uh, and to those in which I will appear to you. We've already discussed what Paul's mission looked like before he encountered Jesus, but look at what he became. The man who zealously persecuted Christians became a man who gave up his own life, in a sense, and was persecuted unto martyrdom. The man who went about persecuting Christians became a man who was persecuted for his faith and ultimately was martyred for the faith. And the end of Acts shows the beginning of that journey when he later goes to Rome, was under house arrest, and ultimately was killed for his faith. And friends, if this doesn't bolster your belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, let it speak to your mind and to your heart. 
Have you noticed in Washington how hard it is to keep secrets, okay? Imagine that the 11 disciples, uh, minus the traitor, had gotten together and said, okay, we really thought Jesus was going to do something spectacular. Instead, he died on a cross. We don't know what to do. Let's create a religion to get some power around here, to get some privilege. Why don't we say we've seen him, that he's raised from the dead? How does that work in Washington? (laughs) not working so well. How does it work in business? How does it work anywhere? Keep this to yourself. Don't tell anyone. It works okay as long as you're prospering, but as soon as somebody starts to put pressure on you to say, is this really true or not? Are you lying? And you're going to go to jail if you don't tell us the truth, or even worse, you're going to die if you don't tell us the truth. People start talking and telling the truth, do they not? And yet the 11 apostles Most of them go to the grave proclaiming that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that they saw him. They would not reject their faith. The apostle Paul was among them who claimed from that moment on the road to Damascus until his death that he saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he got such a mission. And we're called to the same mission And it's interesting, in some ways, our culture is beginning to look a little bit more like the culture in which Saul and Paul was ministering in than it used to for us. Paul wasn't dealing with a secular society. It was polytheistic, right? And ours is becoming increasingly uh, secular. But his was that there are many gods. There were household gods. There were state gods. There were city gods. There were country gods. There was a god for everything. But At the same time in his day, both the Jews and the Romans believed that Christianity was horrible for society. Horrible. I recently heard a lecture by Tim Keller who was talking about how culture has changed and how sharing our faith has changed as well. And when the well-known author of management leadership books, many of you probably heard him, Peter Drucker. How many of you have heard of Peter Drucker? Okay. Us old people. Okay. Okay. When Peter Drucker moved to New Jersey from Europe in 1937, remember that? No. (laughs) To teach at New York University. So when he moved to Europe, from Europe to the New York area, metro area, to teach at NYU, he went to the bank to get a mortgage and they asked him, where do you go to church or where do you go to synagogue? And he said, what does that have to do with anything? And they said, if you don't go to church or synagogue, why are, on earth would we let you borrow money from us? We could never trust you if you don't go to church. We could never trust you if you don't go to the synagogue. There was a time when in our culture, you were encouraged to pursue the Christian faith. And if not the Christian faith, at least some religion. Then it became more and more popular just, just to have a live and let live approach. We like your ethics, but just don't talk to, about us about Jesus too much and we'll be fine. Live and let live. At one time, we were highly encouraged to pursue the Christian faith. Then there was sort of a live and let live approach. But increasingly, Christianity is viewed as bad for our society, Right? It's too narrow. Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We proclaim, and those of us that actually believe the scripture believe that we're not just here in a religious moment or religious holiday to say, isn't it nice, the thought of of people rising from the dead, and and perhaps Jesus will rise in our hearts as we have faith in him. No, we, we believe that a man died and three days later got out of the ground. 
And he hung out with a bunch of people over uh, several days. And then he, he went to be with the Father. And we believe that he will bodily return. And then we believe that as he comes back, that those of us who've died in Christ, our bodies will physically be raised from the dead and be joined with our spirits. And if anyone's hanging around that has not yet died, they're going to be meeting him in the air as well. And then the judgment comes. I mean, this is, what, this is actually what we believe. And increasingly, Christianity is viewed as bad for our society because it's so narrow, and we're becoming more and more like the Roman world where the early church was born. But how did the faith spread back then? How did it spread? And it did, did it not? Under intense persecution, far worse than we've ever experienced here, but similar to what people around the world are experiencing today. How did it spread? Tim Keller talks about how the early church grew not through trained evangelists uh, or great speakers or even inviting people to church because if you invited someone to church, they may die or they may be lying and trying to scope out who the Christians are and, and try to persecute you. The faith spread through ordinary people informally sharing the good news that they knew, but here's the reality. They hardly knew anything. <laughs> Everyone was a brand new Christian. Think about that. You didn't meet someone who's like, well, I was born in the church and I was raised in the church. And I don't know why I'm talking like that, but like, you know, you don't, you never met anyone like that. Like that person meant to be old and Southern, I suppose, but I have a lot of people living inside of me. The faith didn't spread through trained evangelists. It didn't through great speakers or, or even a church service like this. Like, hey, I want to invite you to come to church. Maybe that's some of you. You've invited here today. The faith spread, though, organically through people saying, I have encountered the risen Jesus. Some literally, others metaphorically, in their heart, by faith, were coming to faith in Jesus. And they were saying, like the woman, the Samaritan woman who encountered Christ, and then later, she goes back to her village and she says things like, come meet a man, come meet a man named Jesus who told me everything about my life. Well, what's he like? Tell us about the atonement. Is he going to die on a cross? She doesn't know any about that. She just says, I met a man who can, knew everything about me. Come, come meet him and see, he just may be the Messiah, she says. She might be, he might be the Messiah. Informally, <laughs> organically, missionally sharing. Those of us that know Jesus, are you willing to let people see who you are? It's getting more difficult. But when you encounter the risen Lord, you get a new name, you get a new identity. You know, you're no longer without God. You're no longer far from God. You're no longer without hope. You're a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God. You are his beloved. You're an heir, a co-heir with Christ. You have hope. You have a foundation. You have the promise of the resurrection. You have a new identity. You have a new Lord. Look, every one of us, every single one of us in this room, left to our own devices, will go about living our lives for ourselves. I don't need a casino to remind me that. I, I'm really just doing that naturally. But because of the resurrection, I have a new Lord. And I keep trying to die to myself. And it's a daily fight even unto this day. I have to die to myself and say, no, I have a risen Lord. I have to be a servant. I'm here to serve, not to be served. And we have a new mission. To love and serve in Jesus' name. To meet physical needs, yes. To do justice, to walk humbly with our God, yes, yes. And share the hope 
of the resurrection? Yes, with people. Are you willing to be identified with Jesus? It's getting more difficult. It's weirder, I understand. I'm a pastor. I, I can't hide. Like, people just know I'm weird. Are you willing to be honest? Are you willing to follow him and just share what you know? You're like, I don't know enough to share. They'll have questions I don't know answers to. Who cares? You don't have to have all the answers. Just show them and share what you know. Come meet a man that knew everything about me. Friends, every one of us is seeking some way to live our life with confidence and to face death without fear or regret. Today, place your hope in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.